World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important world capitals, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's John Daly with a summary of headline news as received in New York. The news from the battlefronts is good. The newest United Nations offensives, the Red Army's middle gun attacks in Russia and the British move into Jap-held Burma are making good progress. And in North Africa, the Allied pincers are slowly closing around the Germans and Italians as Hitler frantically tries to hold on to prepare the defenses against an Allied invasion of South Europe. In Russia, in the middle gun offensive, the Red Army is sweeping westward at a speed comparable to the Nazi advance eastward last July. They have taken Katamarovka, only 55 miles north of Milorovo, and now threaten the entire railway line from Voronezh to Milorovo. Milorovo is a junction point of the Moscow-Rostov Railroad. It has already been cut. In Russian hands, it can and probably will be the base of a Russian offensive south to retake Rostov and smash or trap the entire German force in the great Stalingrad salient. Once again, the Russians report that they have taken thousands of German prisoners, this time well over 10,000. That fact alone is extremely significant. It's unlikely that the Russians want to take any German prisoners and will not if any semblance of resistance is offered. The thousands of Nazis that are falling into Russian hands confirm earlier Russian reports that German troops are surrendering wholesale and that the morale of the Nazi army in Russia has deteriorated. About a year ago today, Hitler, with a great deal of fanfare, took over supreme command of the German armies. The best Christmas gift the United Nations could receive is the assurance that he will not relinquish that command. As the new Russian offensive hammers and tears chunks out of the Germans, dispatches said that everywhere along the long Russian front, the Nazis are either in retreat, surrounded, or menaced on the flank. That perhaps is a bit on the optimistic side. But the Russians are holding on to what they've gained in the offensives at Stalingrad and west of Moscow. And although the Nazis have been reinforced and have launched vicious counterattacks, they have not been able to relieve the desperation of their position. Russia has regained 65,000 square miles of Soviet soil so far in the winter offensives. If the new Middle Don offensive maintains its momentum, it will probably force a general Nazi withdrawal that will finally lift the siege of Stalingrad. On the other side of the world, the Japanese Axis partner is still refusing to give battle. A communique from New Delhi said that the British forces moving into Burma continued their invasion without making contact with the Japs. In the air, Allied fighters covering and working with the ground troops are shooting up the Jap-held Akyab area, and Allied bombers are raiding the main Jap airport at Tonggu. In a night raid on the Jap airport at Tonggu, Jap fighters intercepted, but all Allied bombs were dropped in the target area, and all Allied planes returned to base. The Japanese withdrawal without fighting is something of a mystery. It's not like them, and they themselves have been the authority for some reports received in the past few weeks that the British were going to launch an offensive to retake Burma. They've had months to prepare their defenses. But whatever the reason... British General Wavell is obviously looking for a fight, and the Chinese have announced that their army is ready to join in the invasion. In North Africa, the Eastern Allied Pincer Arm in Libya is moving steadily forward. The Western Arm in Tunisia is still preparing for the land offensive. That Allied air power is smashing at Axis objectives all over Tunisia, and heavy Allied air action is also reported in Western Europe across the English Channel. There has been no official news as yet, but strong fighter forces and a large American bomber force have crossed the Channel and headed into France. We'll get the latest developments on the Mediterranean and European fighting from CBS correspondents abroad. In the Pacific, General MacArthur's forces in New Guinea have made new gains in the Buna area. The only Jap forces remaining in that area are to hold out 
as long as they can, but the Allies are checkmating all attempts to reinforce them. And now for the first report from abroad, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Algiers, Charles Collingwood reporting. This campaign in French North Africa has settled down into a muddy struggle for supplies. In this present phase, a truck driver or a good mechanic is almost as important as a general. It's not very romantic, this truck driver's war. But back in the early days of this campaign, there was romance and melodrama enough for anyone. Those were the days when generals were being spirited around the Mediterranean by submarines, and there were secret conferences beneath trap doors, and one if by day, two if by night, lantern signals hanging from steeples. No episode in these almost dime novel days was more genuinely thrilling than the dramatic appearance in North Africa of General Giro. I suppose you know that Giro escaped from France by submarine. But the whole story of that escape has not yet been told. Giro's rescue was engineered by an American naval captain named Gerald Wright. Wright had been with General Clark when Clark landed in North Africa before the campaign began. And he used the same submarine to get Giro out. It was a British submarine commanded by Lieutenant Jewell. This submarine left port late in October. Captain Wright didn't know where he was to pick up General Giro, but he knew about where, so they lay off the coast of France until November 4th. On November 4th, the submarine received directions. They were told to rendezvous and given information about minefields, and the escape was fixed for the night of November 6th. As Captain Wright says, the next step was the most ticklish of all going submerged into a landlocked harbor in Charleston. And lay to less than a thousand yards off the French beach. An hour later, a large rowboat came alongside. In it were General Zero, his son, and two staff officers. As Captain Wright tells the story, by this time the sea was considerably rougher. The rowboat was pitching as it eased up to the forward casing of the submarine. Just as the general stepped from his boat, the boat pitched, and this threw him off balance, and he fell into the water. Captain Wright adds that the general was rescued unhurt. After that, the submarine left the harbor at, quote, maximum speed. But the escape was by no means completed. Zebro was out of France, but he was not yet in safety. As the submarine proceeded out to sea, they received a signal from General Eisenhower telling them that a plane would meet them at dawn. That was dawn on November 7th. The plane didn't find them until 11.30 in the morning. The sea was choppy and it was hard to transfer the passengers and their baggage. Just to make matters worse, an unidentified plane hove into sight and circled the area for 20 minutes. But finally, General Zero and his party were in the seaplane and the seaplane in the air. And thus, spoke Captain Wright again, on the afternoon of November 7th, some hours before the operation for the liberation of North Africa was launched, we delivered zero to Eisenhower. This is Charles Collingwood returning you to New York. Despite the foreign background noise which followed the pattern of Axis jamming of Allied broadcasts, we hope that Charles Collingwood's report from Algiers was understandable. And now for our next report from overseas, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. London news the United States Army bombers were out over the continent today where people on the southeast coast could see them flying out across the channel so low that their American markings were plain and clear. They were gone a long time.
some three and a half hours. So the airwise people of the southeast coast knew this time they'd gone far inland. A few moments ago, United States Army Air Force headquarters in London gave out the news. A large force of flying fortresses and liberators flew this afternoon to Romilly sur Seine, 80 miles southeast of Paris, and 180 miles from the French coast. It's the location of a large airfield. It's too early to have the results of the day's activity, but the early announcement tells us that nearly 300 aircraft of Royal Air Force's Fighter Command cooperated with the large force of American bombers. The fighter's role was to support the bombers, providing some cover for part of the way in toward the target and out again, while others carried out sweeps. It was the first time in eight days that the weather has permitted large-scale air operations over northern France. A great part of daylight Allied air activity from bases in Britain is directed against the enemy's transport system on the continent. Today in London, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Ministry of Economic Warfare said that German-controlled railroads have to carry a greater burden than any railroad system has ever done before. A good deal of the strain has been thrown on the enemy railroads by Allied attacks on Germany's sea routes in the North Sea, in the Baltic, and in the Mediterranean. Late this afternoon, the Germans announced that Laval, Jano, Goering, and Ribbentrop had been holding one of those conferences at Hitler's headquarters. Political and military discussion was the way the Germans put it. Furthermore, the Germans say, the meeting was imbued with the determination of the Axis powers to make an all-out effort to win final victory. This is defensive talk from the people who started out to conquer the world in an offensive without intermission. And it's also something more. It's the kind of talk engaged in by people who have taken a severe blow and know it. Today's German announcement has in London a somewhat familiar ring. It sounds not unlike some of those statements from London back in the days when the British were taking it hard. The British were tough enough to come through, all right, and there's no doubt the Germans will make a very powerful effort to emulate the British example. For our next report, we go now to CBS Cairo and the report of Winston Burdett. Justin Morrison in Cairo. One trouble with being on the winning side of this war is that the Germans run too fast. And if a reporter stuck in Cairo wants to get to the front, he has to fly. The British didn't have a plane available when I wanted to go, but the Americans had dozens. So I was told by the handsome American major who runs that part of the show. Mind you, I don't think this was deliberate, but when I missed the plane he had arranged, through no fault of his, and came trailing back to the hotel in the evening, dirty and disappointed. It was probably only coincidence that the Major was sitting in the lobby having a pink tea with my girl. So I got away the next morning, and for three days I waited at Gambit, a way station in the desert, for another plane to Adidabia. And when that plane took off, it was loaded with 50-gallon drums of gasoline lashed to the sides of the cabin with rope. I was the only passenger. And when the dashing young American pilot came into Ajitabia, he landed downwind and pounced across the rough field like a kangaroo and poked the plane's nose into the mud and nearly turned a somersault. The lashings on the gasoline drums broke and strong men groaned as they lifted the drums off me. I groaned, too. And in the week I spent with broken ribs in a hospital tent at Ajitabia, I missed the day we moved into a gala and the day the New Zealanders got behind the enemy and smashed a third of his tank and captured at least 500 prisoners. 
But lying in that tent, surrounded by men who had been blown up by mines, I discovered that no matter how badly a man's body may be hurt, his spirit can remain undamaged. You get a new viewpoint of the world when you lie on your back and look at it. And my girl didn't like the major anyway. She said he had more hands than a caterpillar. This is Chester Morrison returning you to CBS New York and John Daly. Before bringing you more news from CBS correspondents, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Could this scene take place in your household? Hey, Mom. Oh, Mom. You know about that radio that went dead this morning? Pop said he'd fix it tonight. Well, he did. Our radio's in a worse mess than the alarm clock was when I went to work on it. A year ago, we might have thought such a scene was comic. Today, it brought us on tragedy. A year ago, if Pop accidentally broke a vital part while trying to repair the family radio, it didn't matter much, for he could buy a new one. Today, however, new parts, like new radios, are difficult to get. Therefore, when your radio needs attention, it's important that you call not just a handyman, but a highly skilled radio technician. The best man to call is your Admiral Dealer. And there are three reasons why he is the best man. First, Admiral Dealers are professionals. They have all the facilities, all the knowledge necessary to put a radio in perfect condition regardless of make. Second, Admiral Dealers are businessmen in your own community. They'll give you honest service economically. Third, Admiral Dealers realize Uncle Sam is depending upon radio to furnish war information to his citizens. So they've pledged themselves to do their best for America's radio sets. Take care of your radio, and when it needs attention... Call your Admiral Dealer. And now here once again for Admiral Radio is John Daly. For the news at home, Admiral Radio turns to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. A Navy communique one hour ago reported the continuance of our air offensive against the Japanese airdrome at Munda on New Georgia Island. For the ninth successive day, dive bombers and flying fortresses attacked the installations in the runway at Munda yesterday. No American planes were lost, but three intercepting enemy fighters were shot down. Here in Washington, Senator Burton K. Wheeler of Montana, a pre-war isolationist and a leader of the America First Committee, has threatened to demand a congressional investigation of the way the Justice Department has been handling the prosecution of Nazi sympathizers. Mr. Wheeler says he thinks it's a disgrace the way 28 persons were indicted here in Washington on charges of sedition. Those indicted include such people as George Sylvester Virek, an admitted German agent, Elizabeth Dilling, author of The Red Network, the Reverend Gerald B. Winrod, otherwise known as the J. Hawk Hitler, and William Dudley Pelly, the Fuhrer of the Silver Shirts. In an interview published today in the Washington Post, Senator Wheeler accused Secretary of Justice Biddle of attempting to smear him and present his pre-war isolationism as a crime. As for the 28 persons now awaiting trial for sedition, Mr. Wheeler said he knew nothing about them, whether they're guilty or innocent, but he said he's convinced they won't have a fair trial. Mr. Wheeler attacked the Washington Post as a stooge of the Department of Justice and called its reporter a spy. He added that he thinks reporters and newspapers who have helped to indict the defendants are engaged in a dirty business, and predicted that the day will soon come when they will all regret it. The reply of the Washington Post was simply to print a detailed story about a speech the senator made before an America First rally in Los Angeles last year, 
charging that Franz Ferenc, a German agent now under arrest, had printed the posters and the banners displayed at the meeting and had otherwise assisted in the organization of the rally. The Post today also reprinted two letters from Senator Wheeler to Secretary Biddle, in which, among other things, the senator accuses Mr. Biddle of heading an inquisition. Mr. Biddle's reply was also published in the Post. He simply promised to consider any allegations of improper conduct on the part of the Justice Department, provided the senator can furnish him with specific information. At one minute after midnight tomorrow morning, the ban on gasoline will be lifted. A coupons will be honored and will still be worth three gallons. B and C coupons, however, will be reduced in value from four to three gallons each. Tomorrow, there's going to be a conference between economic stabilizer Burns, Petroleum Administrator Ickes, Transportation Director Eastman, and Leon Henderson, the retiring price administrator. Presumably, the whole gasoline rationing system is going to be reorganized entirely, but to what extent will depend on the results of tomorrow's conference. All we know at the moment is what Mr. Henderson told us last night, that gasoline restrictions are going to be much more rigidly enforced in the future, and that drastic steps are going to be taken to eliminate bootlegging, which is becoming more and more of a problem. As for Christmas travel, the government wants to discourage everyone it can from going home for Christmas, but no orders have been issued. The government is leaving it up to the individual's judgment and his conscience not to put too much of a strain on transportation facilities during the Christmas holidays. Today, Donald M. Nelson reiterated past warnings that the nation faces ever more drastic restrictions on all sorts of travel, by rail, by bus, air, and by private automobile. In a letter to James E. Murray, head of the Senate Small Business Committee, Mr. Nelson says, Travel by automobile is due for restriction much more drastic than that obtaining today. Travel by common carrier will be increasingly inconvenient, and in some cases not permissible at all. He advises Mr. Murray to draft plans for storing up consumer goods in the immediate vicinity of local markets as a safeguard against possible temporary breakdowns in the distributive system. There may be occasions, hours, days, or weeks in duration, he predicts, when civilian goods cannot be moved in adequate quantities to supply certain areas. Therefore, says Mr. Nelson, it will be advisable for merchants to have considerable inventories of food, fuel, clothing, and medical supplies on hand at all times. Last Friday, when the gasoline ban was first announced, many people seemed to think it was designed mainly to prevent holiday travel by automobile. Thousands of people here in Washington had been hoarding their coupons in the hope of being able to drive home and spend Christmas with their families. They knew the government disapproved of holiday travel, and so they thought the suspension of gasoline distribution had been ordered on their account. Now it seems that it wasn't, and though the government still frowns on going home for Christmas, it will apparently be possible for many people to do so. Whether they will or not, of course, depends on how seriously they privately consider the gasoline shortage to be. But the three-day suspension seems to have had a sobering effect on many people, to judge from the number of telephone calls the local studio here has been receiving from listeners who want to help solve the problem. I now return you to John Daly in New York. One of the big news stories here at home today is the return of Captain Eddie Rickenbacker to this country. He will tell his own story over most of these stations at approximately 3.30 Eastern wartime this afternoon. Now, here in New York is Major George Fielding Elliott, Columbia's military expert, with an analysis of the significance of the new British offensive in Burma. Major Elliott. It is far too early to determine whether the British invasion of Burma is the beginning of a real attempt to recover all of Burma from the Japanese, or is merely a local operation 
with the limited objective of recovering the airfield and port of Akyab on the shore of the Bay of Bengal. The enthusiasm with which the news of the British move has been received in Chongqing is, of course, understandable. Only by the recovery of Burma can China's communications with the outside world by way of the famous Burma Road be restored. Naturally, this is an operation in which the Chinese would be only too happy to cooperate to the fullest extent of their power. But the advantages to be derived from the reconquest of Burma would not be China's advantages alone. To reopen the Burma Road would mean that Allied air power could move more freely into China because fuel and bombs and spare parts could be sent in. And the building up of Allied air bases at mainland positions is the best means of directing air attacks against the heart of Japanese industry. Those air attacks which seem to offer the best means of bringing the realities of war home to the Japanese people. Moreover, the recapture of Burma would be a, uh, do a great deal to offset the feeling of defeatism in India, which has been the hidden cause of much of the political and social unrest in that great subcontinent. However, if Burma is to be retaken, the operations will have to be of a far more extensive nature than the present thrust toward isolated Akya. Other invasion columns, British and Chinese, will have to converge on the difficult frontiers of that country, and the British fleet in the Bay of Bengal will have to blockade Rangoon and Mulmine to cut off the Japanese supplies and reinforcements. These must, of course, come by sea, for the land communications between Burma and Thailand are as difficult as those between Burma and India, if not more so. The British report that the Japanese are offering no opposition to the thrust toward Akya. This is not like the Japanese, who have usually fought tooth and nail for every foot of ground when attacked. The reason is probably a tactical one. Probably the area into which the British are advancing offers no position suitable for defense, and the Japanese are therefore withdrawing toward stronger positions. That was Columbia's military expert, Major George Fielding Elliott. Here's a message from our sponsor. Today being the first day of Christmas week, Admiral takes this opportunity of extending cordial greetings to listeners from coast to coast. America's Christmas season this year is happier than last. All the luxuries on our tables may be less in quantity, and the trimmings on our gifts not so elaborate. But now, we and the other United Nations are solidly on our way to victory. There is happiness in knowing each of us is playing a part in bringing about this victory to free mankind from bondage. Working and fighting together for one cause forms a tie which binds every American to every other American. Admiral workers feel this spirit of brotherhood deeply. They are united in producing the best possible radio equipment for America's armed forces, as much of it as is humanly possible. Admiral workers are united in looking forward to the Christmas when they will again be turning out the radio sets America wants at its homes. Admiral radios, for when victory is won, Admiral will resume its place as the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. Uncle Sam has provided V-Mail service for your boy who is stationed overseas. For V-Mail service, write your letter on V-Mail stationery, obtainable at any store where stationery is sold. Use regular airmail stamps and put it in the mail box. The Army and the Post Office will do the rest. Photograph your letter on microfilm, fly it overseas, re-photograph, and hand it to your boy exactly as you wrote it. This is an extra service from Uncle Sam. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, 
makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney saying good afternoon and Merry Christmas from Admiral Radio. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago. <laughs>